0: We finished a series last week, um, titled, or two weeks ago, sorry, I was gone last week, so it didn't happen. Actually, I was online, I was with you, just driving down the road online, we were listening and participating, it was nice rolling hills, it was, it was beautiful, um, but uh, we um, uh, finished a series Imagining the Kingdom, and, and I'm uh, going to be going back into a series we began last year, uh, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and and worship and witness in a uh, winner-takes-all world. Um, And and so we're going to do that series. I could have just called it Imagining the Kingdom, because if ever there were a book written for that title, it's the book of Revelation. I mean, it clearly would fit the title well. So if you would just want to think of that, great. But for those who hated that title, then I'm moving on, and that way you don't have to keep hating the title. You can just put that to bed and go on and do something else. Um, So here we are. Uh, in that. And if you would read with me, um, <clears throat> beginning in Revelation 1, verse 11, um, I'm going to review some things from last year, what we talked about, and then begin where, where we had left off as well this morning. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, I, I at a time like this, um, I realized that it could be almost like, you know, Harry Carey or suicidal to Uh, actually teach on the book of Revelation when everybody's uh, frantic about what it's saying and all that it means. And I'm not going to be actually telling you all that. I'm going to tell you something different. And so I realize that people might, I I could, I could make some people upset because I'm not going to probably preach some of uh, the happiest doctrines in the world for people, but it's only because I don't think they're in the Bible. And so we have to, we have to actually go with that. At least I do. And that's my responsibility. And So we'll go from there. But Revelation 1, beginning in verse 11, if you would. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and I look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write there for what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts, that we might hear and understand, see, and perceive. Turn our hearts toward you. Turn our worship more affectionately upon you. And make our witness a light shining bright in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, the subtitle for this particular message is The Strange Monsters of Revelation. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those strange monsters of Revelation, and we'll keep talking about them, of course, throughout the series. Um, for those that wonder how long we're going to be in it, I don't know, so, <laughs> um, at least till Advent at this point. So uh, that's, that's that. So um, last weekend, we all heard the news of the horrific attack on civilians in the Gaza Strip. War has been declared and humans are being killed on both sides, humans who had no desire for a war but are caught by forces outside their control. After the surge of grief for those killed and those suffering came the realization that the so-called prophecy experts, and I use that in quotation marks, will come out of the woodwork to capitalize on the pain and suffering and to write and sell more books, book more speaking engagements, and do what they can to make Christianity the laughingstock of the world by their careless handling of Scripture. And it has begun. I did a little search on Wednesday of this week just to see what's being said, and frankly, it was appalling. If we're going to understand the book of Revelation It will be because we understand the rest of the Bible, not because we have experts who can explain how the world news fits the timeline of Christ's return. We need to treat the book of Revelation like we would treat any other book in the Bible, where we actually have to interpret it according to some basic rules of interpretation. Like, for instance, what did it mean to the original audience? That might be a good one. One evening this week, Donna noticed a Facebook post that, a prominent leader in the local Christian community had reposted. The picture, and I think I've got this to where you can see it, uh, was of a, yeah, there it is. I mean, the artwork is appalling. I mean, like, seriously, like that is some of the worst graphic art you could ever imagine. But nonetheless, it's, it's a cityscape that appears to be Israel, an Israeli flag to confirm that in the sky above with uh, lightning flowing from the flag to the land, a, a large lion roaring as it sits on top of the cityscape, and the hand, hands-praying emoji added for good measure, I suppose. <laughs> the, the, the text under it began this way. Did you know that the time clock of the return of Jesus Christ isn't based on America's timeline? Okay, it's not a bad start. But did someone think that it was based on America's timeline? I mean, okay. And for that matter, did someone think it was based on any timeline? That might be the bigger question, but we'll get to that momentarily. It continues. It's based on what's happening in Israel. Okay, sharp left turn, driven off a cliff. (laughs) For all the effort Jesus put into convincing us that no one will know the day or the hour, prognosticators abound. It's unbelievable like he made one thing perfectly clear about his return I don't know only the father and you will not know the day or the hour like you're not going to know it and yet we continue to figure it try to figure it out now of course somebody is always quick to say yes we won't know the day or the hour but we can know the season which sounds like that teenager having been caught doing something they were told explicitly not to do and they respond with some poppycock about, well, you told me not to leave the house. You didn't say which house. And I was at my friend's house all night long. It's like, you really think I'm that stupid? (laughs) To be fair to teenagers, (laughs) because it isn't your fault that adults act this way, I'm not picking on you. (laughs) The nonsense that people spew about end times prophecies being fulfilled is like the nonsense I once taught. I speak from experience. Stuff I repented for to my church in Utah in the early 80s. I was in the middle of a teaching series on this nonsense, and I got up after a friend had come to visit town, and he just started asking me some questions. Questions which the answers of which, the answers were actually obvious in Scripture, but the answers betrayed the fallacy and all that I was teaching about the end times. So I got up to the church and said, hey, by the way, everything I've just taught you, we're, 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 not, we're ending the series, everything i just taught you is wrong. Yeah. Okay. Now, I don't know what's right, but I know that's wrong. That much i figured out. <laughs> we'll figure out one day if I can figure out something about what's right, but I know this much, that isn't, that isn't what's right. And so I speak from experience. There is no timeline by which we can know when Jesus is coming back. That is not the purpose of the book of Revelation. If we think that is the purpose of the book of Revelation, we actually might as well cut it out of our Bible and toss it in the trash. I'm not suggesting that. Because effectively, that's what we're doing. If we keep looking at it for the purpose for which it was not written, we will not actually hear the purpose for which it was written. And that's why I think it's important that we take some time to speak about this. Someone will always ask me, do you think the end is near? Well, let's be clear. First, Peter said we were in the last days on the day of Pentecost, so certainly we still are. Second, uh, it is nearer today than it was yesterday, and tomorrow will be nearer than it is today. If the Lord tarries 10 years, and you ask, well... On that day, I will tell you, it's 10 years closer than it was 10 years ago, which was today. And if he tarries another 1,000 years, in a 1,000 years, I won't be here to be asked at that point. Um, in a 1,000 years, uh, it will be 1,000 years closer. The, the only biblical requirement that I can see in Scripture that needs to be fulfilled for the Lord to come back is he did say repeatedly that will happen when we least expect it. And since everybody seems to be expecting it, I don't imagine it could happen now. (laughs) That's tongue-in-cheek, just for the record. It could happen now, but (laughs) it seems obvious that that would be the one major obstacle that stands in the way. And if that is the case, it would mean that we have thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years, before the nonsense will stop. Now, it it may sound like I have all the answers, which would be both arrogant and wrong because I don't have all the answers. So don't miss my point. Let me be clear about my point. I do not think I have the end times figured out. No, I firmly believe that no one can have the end times figured out, and I have it on good authority that the Bible doesn't intend to provide such knowledge. Do not be deceived. So, no, I don't have it all figured out. I simply quit the effort of trying to figure it out. And I'd like you to join me in quitting that effort. Studying Revelation is helpful, but it is helpful for its actual purpose, not for figuring out when Jesus is coming back. If we read it expecting a timeline of the future, we silence the book and it ceases to do what it intended. And, 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 and no sermon on Revelation is complete without Chesterton's uh, statement. <laughs> Though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> N- noted. And the problem, he goes on to clarify, is not in what the book says, but in trying to explain every symbol with exact meaning in a finite world, which is what creates problems to this day. There are two common responses to the discussion about the book of Revelation. I talked about these last year, but I want to just refresh us because um, well, they tend to be what we go with one way or the other, and it, they're real. The first is, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. Okay? And that is humorous and, in fact, accurate because it will all pan out in the end. It likely, not always, but likely represents both a I-don't-want-to-argue-about-it attitude, now that's good, And it can represent a, I'm not going to take the book seriously attitude. Because underlying that statement is often, not always, but often the assumption that the book is about a timeline on the end of the world, but there are so many different opinions that I can't figure that one out, so I'm going to just go with, it'll all pan out. What I need to understand is, sure, it'll all pan out, but it isn't about that. And so it's worth studying, but not for that purpose, not for the purpose of figuring out the return of the Lord. Um, The other response is, oh, I'm super excited. That's my favorite book of the Bible. And that excitement is often rooted in the same thing, like because I'm going to figure out when Jesus is coming back, which it never intended to do. So as much as I'm thrilled that you might be excited, often that response worries me more than the other. Um, I, I, was in a, I was in the theater when Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth debuted in 1978, soaking it all in. Now, if you don't know anything about Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth and the movie that followed, uh, think Left Behind, but instead of a novel setting of like real life events, think Newsreel with Orson Welles narrating. We've got like the six o'clock news, all this war and all these these scenes going on. And Orson Welles with his deep voice telling you what's what's going on. It was impressive as far as that goes. Um, One left the theater convinced that Jesus was coming back within a few years. Why go to college? Why bother getting an education? So rather than preparing for ministry, I planted a church at almost 19. I said almost 19, which means I was actually 18. But we won't discuss that right now. In 1981, and about 1984 is when that event occurred when I was teaching through in times nonsense and had to tell my church that we were going to stop the series because it was, in fact, just that nonsense. Fortunately, that, my, my coming to the awareness that I was speaking nonsense, was before Edgar was and I hope I'm saying his name right, Uh, a former NASA engineer and Bible student published 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and of course the next year, um, On Borrowed Time, which was jokingly referred to as 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 89, adding the additional reason that he didn't return in 88. (laughs) You could do one a year, you know, for quite a while and keep selling books, I'm sure. Wizenant declared, "Only if the Bible is in error, am I wrong? And I say that to every preacher in town, and if there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on it." We didn't have an execution just for the record, but he was clearly wrong. Trinity Broadcasting Network, otherwise known as TBN, interrupted programming leading up to the predicted day, providing special instructions on how to prepare for the rapture. You may think I'm joking. I'm not. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't make it up. And this was mainstream Christianity. I'm not saying the majority, but it was well known in mainstream Christianity. Hmm. Well, one thing that Mr. Wisnod did teach us, you can't read the Bible through an engineering lens. It's the wrong genre. Five years later, Harold Camping. I mean, if this wasn't enough, five years later, Harold Camping through the family radio station, uh, predicted Judgment Day would occur on or about September 6, 1994. When, sub- when September 7th came, he revised the date to September 29th and then to October 2nd. Didn't give himself much room on that last one. Wait 11 years, and in 2005, Camping suddenly realizes the date is May 21st, 2011, whereupon the saved would be taken up to heaven in the raptured, followed by five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on earth, it- with millions of people dying each day, culminating in October with the final destruction of the world. Fortunately, by the time 2011 came along, nobody was listening to him anymore. Current events in the Middle East have the press is warming up to print yet more nutty predictions, but none of that is what the Book of Revelation is about. And I do have to apologize, sadly, because of the culture that we are in. I, I wish I could just preach the Book of Revelation for what it is, and I will. But I do have to spend some time telling you what it isn't, because that's what we're so trained to think that it is. And so I'm going to hammer hard on the front end to tell us what it isn't, so that when we start talking about what it is, we have more of a groundwork laid for us to to build on. We often have more that we read into the book of Revelation than we read out of it, and our goal will be to read out of it. So we're going to talk about this. I've got three headings, Uh, yes, and that was a long introduction, but had to be. Um, Revelation, the basics. Revelation, the problem. And Revelation, the throne. And um, uh, if we don't have time for the last one, I'll cut it off and we'll do it next week. So the basics. First of all, the whole book is a letter to seven churches. We we often talk about the seven letters to the churches in Revelation or in Asia Minor. And it's a little bit of a misnomer. We covered this last year, but I want to I want to restate this because it's very important. First off, the the foremost uh, scholar on you know analyzing letters of the first century and and in Scripture, Jeffrey Weima, uh, has written a book to, to about this. But he notes that there is not a single uh, uh, stylistic piece of evidence in those seven messages to the seven churches of a letter of the first century world, which is to say. Those aren't letters, okay? That's fine if you want to call them letters. I still accidentally call them letters half the time, so that's fine. It's not the end of the world. But it's, there is an important theological point here, and that's this. This whole book is a letter, and it has all the markings of a letter of that period. It has a, an introduction, a greeting, to it, who it's to. It has a closing at the end, you know, and it's a Christian letter. It has a benediction, a blessing and, and, and so forth. So it is a letter to the seven churches. So there is one letter in there, and it's the whole thing. The whole thing is a letter, and there are seven prophetic messages to seven churches, much like uh, you know, John, Jesus tells John, write what you see. He told Ezekiel, write what you see and give it to the people, write what you see. But those weren't letters, they were prophetic messages, and that's exactly what these are, the seven in there. But the whole thing is a prophetic message to those seven churches in Asia Minor who represent the church in the world, who represent ultimately us in, 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 in many respects. So, but we have to recognize that aspect. It is not a Futuristic prophetic message to seven churches with seven different cover letters that happen to address current events in those churches. Rather, the whole thing's addressing the same things to all, to them throughout, and and which means it's all was very relevant to them, not just some future generation. Um, so the genre is a letter, but the genre of its content is apocalyptic. The book titles itself, the very first words, are the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, or as we translate it, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's apocalypso. And, and, and so, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The etymology of that word, Apocalypse, is, is interesting. I mean, the word simply means to unveil or to reveal, but the etymology, which is often tells you a little bit about a word, it's a little bit of a word picture, it's to take off the covers. So you imagine a a painting that I might have up here on an easel. And I, I've built up how beautiful this painting is, but it's covered in a sheet. So you, of course, can't see it, but we're going to unveil it momentarily. And what do I do? At some point I come and I unveil it by lifting up or lifting off the cover that is on it. This is the apocalypse. It's an unveiling of what we can't see because it's covered. It opens it up so we can actually see what is going on behind the scenes, if you will. And that's what this book is fundamentally about, because that's its genre, and that's what it intends to do. One of the reasons Revelation is, is difficult to understand um, is because it is apocalyptic literature, which was familiar to a first century audience, but is not familiar to us, or at least not very familiar to us. Um, believers of that generation understood the book more easily than we do because they understood both the genre, they understood their culture, and they understood the Old Testament much better than us. And all of those are necessary for understanding this book. Okay, And even then, it will still be a bit veiled, and I'll explain that under point two in a bit. But to understand Revelation, we don't need the news channel. We need immersion in the Old Testament, immersion in the first century culture of imperial worship, and familiarity with apocalyptic writing as a genre or a style of writing. So, what is it about? Well, to understand the book of Revelation, we need to know more about the world into which it was written than the world in which we live. The world into which it was written says more about it than what's going on in the Middle East today. Now, current events... Hear what I'm saying here. Current events don't help us understand Revelation any more than they help us understand the book of Romans. They may help us apply both the book of Romans and the book of Revelation properly in our lives, but we first have to understand what they were saying to the first audience. Then we can understand how to apply it in our own lives. Um, In Bible interpretation, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it a hundred more times before I die. Context is king. Context is king. The the context, there are several layers of context that you have to pay attention to. Yes, it's the verse before, the verse after, or the book that something's in, sure. But the context is also that place into which it was written. In other words, what was the context into which this book was written? Well, it was first century Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. Uh, Another thing that we have to consider in context is the style of writing, which we've talked about. It's a letter, but it's also apocalyptic in, in terms of its style. Um, God inspired, for instance, when I read the book of Psalms, I have to recognize that God inspired the poetic style of the Psalms as much as he inspired the very words themselves. If, if I don't understand that, I end up with believing that the world is flat or something silly like that. Okay, Style of writing is important. God is not a chicken, even though it says he has wings and feathers, right? Because the style of writing is poetic. I have to take that into account. The same goes with apocalyptic literature. I have to take that into account. When we think about the imagery of the book of Revelation, uh, and, and, and it does seem difficult to us, but we have to consider that context. Trimper Longman writes this, and it helps understand it. He says, The difficulty is not because of the complexity of the book of Revelation, but rather because we modern readers are unfamiliar with imagery that would have been known to its first readers. These images, for the most part, were not created out of thin air, but have a background not only in 1st century A.D. Greco-Roman culture, but also in the Old Testament, which itself is the background for ancient Near Eastern literature. Let me simplify that for you. If we're going to understand it, We have to realize that what makes it understandable is that its background is the world in the first century Roman Empire. That's the world it was written to. And those images meant something to those people. And we have to understand what that was. Second, we have to understand the Old Testament because virtually every image in there was drawn from the Old Testament. It was picked because of its application in their world, but it was drawn from the Old Testament. And we have to go to that place in the Old Testament to understand what it was saying in order to really understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. So the secret is the Bible. There's the secret to understanding. That's why it's at the end. If you, if you master the rest of it, that one will be a lot easier to read uh, and understand. Um, a couple of other authors in their book uh, explain the purpose of this genre. Quote, Apocalyptic literature has always been an effort to respond to the very basic human questions that trans- transcend time and place. How do we live in a world rife with evil? Does God care about our predicament? Will justice finally be found on earth? What happens when we die? These and other questions live in the heart of humanity. The book of Revelation offers powerful poetic answers to them. And then speaking To the value of the book of Revelation, for us today, they write, we are trying in our own ways from different outposts of empire to live lives faithful to the crucified and risen one. This is not now and has never been an easy thing to do. We believe that Revelation offers great insight as to how this is both necessary and possible. How do we live lives that are faithful to the crucified and risen one? How do we do that here in St. Petersburg? The book of Revelation will help us, but first by understanding how they had to do it in Asia Minor in the first century. Well, why does the book of Revelation matter? If it is is about an end-time scheme so that we know when Jesus is coming back, I would tell you it matters not a lick because 2,000 years of history have proven that nobody will get it right. Every generation since has thought they were certainly the one based on something they got out of the Bible that proved that they were the generation. And so if, it's, if that's the purpose, it's useless because it will never succeed. On the other hand, and believe me, I'm on the other hand. If, for example, the mark of the beast has nothing to do with embedding credit card information under your skin or on your forehead or allowing your information to be digitalized into some sort of whatever... If instead it's actually symbolic of more subtle ways that we compromise our faith in order to gain wealth, then maybe, maybe we are in great danger of receiving the mark and not even knowing it. While someone is worried about a chip being implanted under their skin, they may have sold out to the beast and not know it yet. Now that's problematic without question. You know, it's a lot easier if I can just say, hey, it's this whole credit card and betting thing and a chip in my hand. Well, who well, would be dumb enough to fall for that? But that's not what it is. I mean, goodness sakes, in the 80s, well, the 70s and 80s, I mean, we all knew the Antichrist had something definitely to do with the European Union. God forbid that ten nations come together and create the European Union. The silliness, it's just got to stop. It's got to stop because it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, it makes the church a laughing stock. <laughs> anyway, Revelation is about worship and witness in a winner-takes-all world. The one To the one who overcomes, that one will inherit all that is promised here. book of Revelation was written to churches which were predominantly unhealthy in their worship and witness. We have the seven represented in those seven messages, and... Five of them were unhealthy. Two of the seven were healthy. They had compromised with Roman imperial worship for the satisfaction of their earthly desires. Their worship and witness were compromised. They largely lacked the patient endurance that would be required. If revelation is the medicine that they needed, I would argue that it's the medicine we need. For, I think the diagnosis is often the same. Revelation is not relevant because of what's happening in the world today, but it is relevant because of the condition of the church today. I want to be one of those faithful churches there. But in truth, myself included, if we we're going looking for a church, we arrive in a new city and we're picking a church. If we visited the seven churches that are listed there and, and we go by the descriptions we have in chapters 2 and 3, None of us would choose the two healthy churches. We would choose one of the five unhealthy churches. I'm just being honest. So it says something about what we value and should value and not value. For the suffering church that was enduring, Revelation communicates that things are not as they appear to be. Now, my second point, I want to address this question. Why is it always easier, easier for pastors to preach through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and not the rest of them? Why, why is it always easier for us to read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and get something out of them than it is to read the rest of the book? There's actually a reason for that. And it's actually in the text. And so I want to draw your attention to that and that under the heading Revelation, the problem. And this speaks to the... A reason that we can't overcome simply by, you know, learning how to read or learning the first century or learning... This speaks to another issue, a spiritual issue, as to how we read the book and how we need to understand it. Uh, There there are seven places, chapter 2, verse 7, 11, 17, and 29, chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22, that reads as follow. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. G.K. Beale in his commentary on Revelation, which is ironically called the short, a shorter commentary on Revelation. It's over 500 pages, so I mean, I don't know. But, <clears throat> in fine print, mind you. But he points out that this exhortation was used by Jesus in the Gospels. And he got it from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who, of course, got it from Jesus to begin with. So Jesus gives it to them, and then they give it to Jesus, and now you know, we have it. But um, the exhortation helps explain the difference between the first three chapters and what follows. Because everywhere we see in the Bible this exhortation to let the one who has ears to hear, what follows is very veiled and hard to understand. (laughs) And, And we see that throughout. Matthew 13, Jesus uses the exact expression after speaking in parables. The disciples far more concerned with growing the followers than Jesus ever was, asked Jesus why he spoke in these confusing parables. Jesus directly ties the expression to Isaiah and explains that this is so that, in effect, some hear and and others only get more confused. Like there's some kind of insider information. Now, we often think of Jesus speaking in parables to make things easier to understand. And there clearly are times when parable is used more loosely as an illustration that he does. But generally speaking, when Jesus spoke in parables, it was to make things harder to understand. You know, we might wonder why he did it, but he explains that to him That there's, there's some sort of spiritual condition that's required for somebody to understand these things. And I, the Isaiah reference comes, and Jesus quotes the Isaiah reference, but it comes at the end of... You know, Isaiah 6, Isaiah's commissioning scene, uh, well-known, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, you know, and the coal from the altar. Well, at the end of that, uh, the the, the Lord says to him, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people uh, calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Not, that's where Jesus quoted from as well. The point there is that the prophets and Jesus, they use symbolic actions and parables to communicate truth, but those truths both opened things up on the one hand and obscured them on the other. So I don't like it that way. Well, I don't either, to be honest with you, but it's too bad. He did it. <laughs> what follows these exhortations are messages which are neither understood nor received by the prophet's audience. When you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they say this, and then what follows is nobody understands. (laughs) And so you have this repeated seven times in chapters 2 and 3, and what follows, guess what? It's harder to understand logically. We should have expected that than what precedes. So how do we hear? Now, this does speak to the question of how do we interpret the book of Revelation. Do we interpret it literally or symbolically? You ever heard that debate? We we, we need to take it literally. Um, Let's take the parables of Jesus, for example. Were they to be interpreted literally or symbolically? Was Jesus really talking about farming and good methods for farming? Or was he... Uh, In another place, suggesting that shepherds leave 99 to the wolves and go after the one. That was almost certainly already gone. No, he would have been giving bad advice if he was. The whole point is that these parables were hidden, and you had to really think deeply about what he's getting at. Maybe more hidden than we often realize as we're expositing them. Now, for the record, nobody takes the book of Revelation literally. Nobody. You can't do it. I'll give you an example. In the spring of 1979, at the ripe old age of 16, I was uh, listening to uh, Hilton Sutton, uh, his teaching cassettes. I don't know if you know what a cassette is, but it's this little plastic <laughs> rectangular thing. Anyway, and, and my dad and I were driving back and forth from St. Louis to northwest Arkansas, on Fridays, and then Sunday nights, you know, Friday evening, Sunday night, because we were moving up there, he and I lived up there, the family was trying to sell the house back here, it was back and forth, and so we have a lot of time to listen, and we're in his, uh, I mean, the latest, greatest Volkswagen Rabbit, you know, that he had gotten, <laughs> and driving back and forth, and uh, 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 we're listening to Hilton Sutton Cassettes, uh, he was one of the prophecy experts in the same stream as Hal Lindsey, and later Tim LaHaye, Um. He was, he was always for and, and, and always spoke about the importance of interpreting the book of Revelation literally. And yet still, in one of his messages, he explained that the locusts, which had the sting of a scorpion, wore battle armor like horses, had gold crowns and human faces. Uh, I think it's uh, Revelation chapter 9. Um, and women's hair and lion's teeth, that they were Apache helicopters. So I, I think we have a picture of an Apache helicopter that we can put up. There you go. Now, does that look like he was interpreting that literally? No. That doesn't have any hair. Doesn't look like a locust or a scorpion. Or, I mean, clearly that is not what we see in the book of Revelation. Now, I, I mean, he obviously wasn't aware that hippies couldn't just go into the military and start flying choppers without a haircut. I mean, it just, it's not going to work. Um, The point is this. Despite his insistence on literal interpretation, he too took it symbolically. The difference is that he interpreted the symbols through modern technology rather than through the obvious Old Testament references and the cultural context of living in the Roman Empire. I would suggest that we interpret Revelation the same as the rest of Scripture based on its context and its intended meaning. Either we think it's about sea monsters and yetis, or we interpret it symbolically. Because those are our two options. We'll see CC monsters and yetis in there, to be sure. Um, if we respect the inspiration of Scripture, we must respect the form of the literature as well as the words. To respect the form of apocalyptic literature is to know that it is intentionally symbolic. Now, let's turn to Revelation 4, and we'll at least give a brief introduction to the rest of the book. Revelation 4, under the heading, The Throne, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Who, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their Being. In chapters 2 and 3, the two chapters that precede this text that we just read, immediately precede this text that we just read, John spoke of how things looked from an earthly perspective. They were full of trouble. People were being martyred. People lived, as it says in chapter 2, verse 13, where Satan has his throne. They attended not just a synagogue, but the synagogue of Satan people who persecuted the early church. Now a door into the spiritual realm is open for John and he'll be allowed to see things from, an earth, from a heavenly perspective where God has his throne. The description is necessarily symbolic because there are no human words to truly describe the heavenly perspective. John must be given visions. They were living where Nero once had his throne, and where most likely Domitian had his throne in the present time. But there is a throne over that evil throne. God's throne in heaven rules over all, even the evil throne of Domitian and Nero. This door, or gate, is a passageway from one realm to another. It's common in apocalyptic literature that the person that's receiving the visions goes through a door or they go through a gate. They go through a passageway from one sphere to another sphere. From the world where John was living and things were were terrible to this world where he's going to receive a heavenly perspective on what's going on in that world that he was living in. Okay. It says, after this, I must... um, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this, at the end of verse 1. The phrase picks up on what was said in chapter 1, verse 19. We read it earlier this morning at the beginning, when it says, Write therefore what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. Well, take place later is rather vague, I think, intentionally. They made it vague in translation. It's not so vague in the original. Jesus tells John literally, Write therefore. The things you saw, the things that are, and the things that are about to become after these things—the sense of the word which I translated "about to become" always has immediacy, not distance. I'll just give you a couple of examples, but I could give you a dozen examples. But this sense of immediacy—the centurion servant was about to die. It wasn't as if he was going to die in thirty years. He was about to die. I mean, sure, you know, what happened later? No, that's not the point. It would happen later. The point was, was a, he was about to die. Uh, or when Jesus asked Philip where they should buy bread, it says that Jesus was only testing Philip because he knew what he was about to do. It didn't mean that, you know, in 20 years, Jesus was going to feed those 5,000 people miraculously. No, like, he knew he's about to feed them right then. So, the, the things that will happen later are the things that are immediately coming to pass in their lifetimes. Okay. By the way, they're still coming to pass in different ways in our own lifetime, but not because of some timeline that's sketched out, just because this is the way the world functions and works. There's a reality that we see, and then there's the lift the veil and see the actual painting. What's going on behind the scenes? In other words, Revelation wasn't speaking primarily about a distant future. The visions John was seeing were about the present realities of the churches and the things that were going to come to pass immediately thereafter, but that continue today in their own form and culminate in the return of Christ to reign over a new heaven and new earth. Revelation was meaningful to late 1st and early 2nd century believers. Its meaning for them is the key to understanding its meaning for us. Have I said that enough this morning? I just want to make sure we get that. The things that are for us, are different today. But the realities of how God sees the world and what is really going on behind the scenes is still very real and will culminate in the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and His promised good King. Um, there's some videos. You can look them up. I almost, if it didn't take 22 minutes, I would have actually showed them to us here. But Bible Project has uh, part one, part two videos on uh, the book of Revelation. Fantastic. <clears throat> Encourage you to listen to those. <clears throat> really good. Uh, I'd, I'd listened to them on my bike ride the other day, just thinking, oh, hey, let's see what these are. And, and they're really good. So, but, but on there, I grabbed a, a snatched a quote off of there that I thought was really helpful. Notes that apocalyptic writings use symbolic visions, quote, that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. A heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. Revelation gives the first readers a heavenly perspective on their experience of history and then shows how that plays into the final outcome of things. And if we start there, then we begin to understand what it says about our experience of history today as well. The heavenly throne room. The various descriptions of this throne room are drawn from biblical texts. Exodus, Isaiah, and Ezekiel certainly top the list. There are others we could refer to. What is Less obvious is that they also make a statement about Roman imperial worship. You see, John is using imagery from the Old Testament. But he's, I mean, there's lots of imagery he could have drawn from. But he chooses this particular imagery because, guess what? The world in which they lived also used this imagery, but for a different purpose. And so when we see that, it begins to bring together what what he's doing here. Caesar, in their world, on their coins, on their uh, uh, various works of art, Caesar was pictured with winged flames before his throne. Angels are flames of fires. And and coins showed lightning coming from his throne. Symbolic mythical creatures made up of animal forms, uh, eagles, oxen, lions uh, were some of the most popular, were common in imperial Rome around the throne of Caesar. White robes were worn by those around his throne, symbolizing his victory. You see, all of this to say that not only does the vision draw on the Old Testament imagery, but it intertwines with the Roman imperial world. Imagine something written today that spoke of an eagle and stars with a shield with red and white stripes. No one would miss the symbolism, at least in our American audience. They wouldn't miss the symbolism of what's going on in Revelation 4. And, of course, the screaming message is, oh, by the way, you live in a world where Caesar thinks he's the one that's in charge. But no, let me show you God's throne. (laughs) It's like what he thinks his throne is like, but on steroids times 10. I mean, it's just like magnified, big time. Jesus wants us to know that in a world where violence seems to reign, in truth, God's reign God, that in truth, God reigns, and those of us who appear to be losing that's the saints, we often appear to be losing are going to be dressed in white robes of victory. Let me just say that again. Jesus wants us to know that in a world where violence seems to reign, in truth, God reigns, and those of us who appear to be losing that's us, the saints are going to be dressed in white robes of victory. That is necessary to believe if we are going to have what later in the book of Revelation will be repeatedly told, if we're going to have the patient endurance on the part of God's people, that will be necessary. The powers of this world still exalt themselves over God. That hasn't changed. The forms have changed. Empire worship isn't as obvious, or maybe we're just numb to its new forms and don't recognize it. I don't know. The call to faithfulness in worship and witness is as necessary today as it was in John's day. The promise of a new heaven and a new earth is as crucial today as it was then. The patient endurance of the saints, which this book calls for repeatedly, is vital for victory as, it was, as vital for victory as it was then, if not more. How do we respond to the things that are happening, for instance, in Israel today? We pray for those who are suffering. We pray for those who cause the suffering. We cast our anxieties on the Lord and don't get caught up in the fear or the frenzy that accompanies times like this. And that isn't the same as saying, don't worry, be happy. It's about understanding that God's ways are different than the world's ways, and Our response need to be like Christ's prayer. Yes, for those who are suffering, prayer for enemies, prayer for everyone that God's ways in the world would be accomplished, His good ways. As we continue through the book of Revelation, we will continue to see things that are not as they appear to be. But the the pressing question is not, when will this happen? No, no, that's not the pressing question. The, the pressing question for us as we go through this book is, what are the thrones which tempt us away from the throne of God and the Lamb? What are the thrones that tempt us away from the throne of God and the Lamb? Because there are thrones in our day. Maybe it doesn't look like empire worship. Maybe it looks more like corporation worship, because that's who rules the world mostly today anyway. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see. Help us to recognize where our allegiance has been misplaced. Help us to endure, not to give in and give up because things look so poorly. Help us to repent so that we might be given ears to hear and eyes to see lest we be blinded and confused. And Lord, while all around us people will no doubt get caught up in sensationalism, Help us to be a steady voice of truth and grace and love. Lord, you've been so gracious to us. Help us to be gracious to all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.